Welcome to the Shift Your Paradigm podcast, where we embark on a journey of self-discovery and transformation. I'm your host, Jackie Bonjavani, a yoga instructor, meditation teacher, and wellness coach. Get ready to unlock new levels of awareness, gain profound insights, and shift your paradigm to create the life you've always dreamed of. Let's dive in. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Marielle Bouquet, psychologist and author of Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. She is an expert in intergenerational trauma. She released her book early January, and it's already a national bestseller. So in this conversation, we definitely talk about the book. We talk about how we can heal from generations of pain. We talk about how it's really never too late to heal and how to connect and really process our emotions. So if you're interested, I highly recommend picking up her book. There's so many exercises, uh, practical steps to really support you on this healing journey. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Marielle. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Hi. (laughs) I am so, so excited to have you on today. And I know I said it in the beginning, but just can't say it enough. Like, congratulations. A national bestseller. That's phenomenal. Like, Thank so- <laughs> you. So it's very incredible. surreal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember us chatting about the book two years ago. And just to have the time be here now and also to see how well it's been received is just it's so beautiful in so many ways. <laughs> thank you for sharing in the joy with yeah. me. I'm very excited about it all. <laughs> yeah, I love, I just love seeing people I know and just anyone just fully step into who they are, what they're here to bring and own it and see it just completely flourish. So um, I, so your book is called Break the Cycle and um it's all about intergenerational trauma. So before we kind of, I guess, dive into that, because that's like, I'm so excited. I guess I'll pause and just like, who are you? How did you kind of get to this book? And like, I know there's a long journey in it, but whatever you want to share. (laughs) Mm, Yes, it's a great start. And yeah, so I'm, you know, Afro-Dominican and um, also someone who migrated to the U.S. And I think those identities definitely like frame my experience, not just as a person, but also as the psychologist that I am, a trauma trained and trauma responsive psychologist and someone who specializes in generational healing, which is in part, you know, uh, where this work with Break the Cycle and the framing of it as a book really came to be. It was from my therapy room where I continue to have conversations with my clients over the years who were cycle breakers, who were people that were engaged in the process of healing many of the aspects of uh, inherited trauma. And I kept thinking, you know, not only are we not as equipped as a society to really have a a really comprehensive framework around what intergenerational trauma is, but even the step beyond that, what generational healing can look like. So 
um, this work was really just birthed from a desire to have a healing protocol that was comprehensive and that all of us could lean on for, for, you know, the healing that we want to do. It's so incredible. And I selfishly, I got, I was on the pre-order list. So <laughs> like, I read like a hundred pages mm-hmm. in one night and mm-hmm. I love how comprehensive the book is and how there are so many exercises and like you take something that can feel so daunting and overwhelming and like looming and you create these like small manageable steps. Okay. And like, I will call out to one more thing of, I really love in the book that you do pause and you're like, Hey, this is a lot like take a breath, come back. And to be able to hold readers from that space is just so beautifully wrote, like written and I and I obviously personally know you so it's like I can hear your gorgeous voice being like okay that was a lot take a breath <laughs> um so yeah so being able to give people those like bite-sized steps or processes or um I'm curious for you a little bit in the book like what was your favorite part to write or like, what were you most excited if there was any? Hmm. Wow. Most excited. I haven't, haven't really gotten that question. And I guess it hasn't really offered me the moment of reflection, but I, now that I think about it, like the last chapter, uh, which talks about building generational legacies and the, the imprints and the, the kind of message that we want to leave behind to future generations, whether it's, you know, our children or if we're not parents or not uh, looking to be parents, like just the impact that we wish to leave behind as a legacy. And all of that is reflected in a way that also ties back to the ways in which my family has been um, people that have also like created legacies that I've been able to inherit that have been a part of our generational resilience and the, a part of the generational wisdom that we continue to pass on. So it was just like a, a moment to really sit with all the work we've done in the book and then finally like focus on and and what's the thing that is your legacy that, you, that people will talk about in generations to come. And I love that aspect of the work and really getting into that and also helping any of us who are cycle breakers understand that there are legacies that we can build, even if we come from inheritances of pain. Mm, I feel that. And there's like, there's an energy of like hope and really like, yes, I think in the healing work, um, just personally, like I came from a place of like wanting to fix myself, which I feel is very common. And what I hear you saying is like in that last chapter, it's like, yeah, do all this work and find the patterns and get into like the depth. And like, there's, there's sunshine, like there's, there's beauty to this work. There's hope, there's things you can pass on and create. And, um, I love, I think you say it in the book, but like, you are not like your DNA. And yeah, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And and I talk about like that genetic determinism, which is like our belief that what we inherit is basically what frames our lives for the rest of our lives. 
And it is a very limited way of thinking of our possibilities. Like we are such vast people that have so much that is a part of our lives beyond trauma. Like we're not just people that are trauma period, right? Like, and I think that that's what tends to happen to the mind whenever trauma enters the picture is that we are so encapsulated in the pain that we become almost kind of, kind of like our identity is kind of con- contained within this trauma narrative. Right. And what I wanted for us to understand is your DNA is not your destiny. It is simply a fragment of how maybe temperamentally you were manufactured, right, in the womb. Mm. And it is also data. It's just data for us to then take and work with so that we can create a lighter version of you. It's so beautiful. And there just, again, so much hope within that one statement. Um, I want to pause for a second because I want to define trauma really quick or the way you define trauma. And then just what is intergenerational trauma for anyone listening that's like, what is all this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's worth explaining for sure. Now, trauma is actually the ways in which we cope through really adverse circumstances, right? And that coping can sometimes be very adaptive and help us really to survive moments. And sometimes the coping actually tends to cause even greater suffering and hurt for us. Um and when it comes to intergenerational trauma, it's the only trauma that's handed down our family line. And it happens at the intersection of our biology, meaning our genetic transmissions or more specifically epigenetic markers that can get passed down to our family members or, you know, children, their children. And it happens by way of like, you know, if you have one parent that has been in chronic trauma and they haven't had an opportunity to really resolve that it could show up in their genetic encoding, which could then get passed on when they conceive us. And then whenever we are now born and we're like, you know, connected to the world in different ways, there are so many things that can happen in life that can actually trigger that emotional vulnerability into now being a trauma response, which means that now the trauma has become intergenerational. Because it's been passed down. It's been absorbed within... Um, and what, yeah, just to keep on this definition really quick, what do you, how, what would you define as a cycle breaker? How do I know if I'm a cycle breaker? Yeah. Cycle breaker, cycle breakers are my favorite people (laughs) on this planet, as you can imagine. Um, especially being on the receiving end of so many stories of cycle breakers and just being in complete awe, like, wow, you did that? Like, I'm, I'm just, it's always fascinating to me what people can overcome. Mm. But a cycle breaker is someone who has determined that the cycle of trauma ends with them, that the status quo of how their family, their communities have operated is no longer beneficial to them, to the people around them. And they have taken the very courageous and very hard task to actually disrupt the patterns that have been there and and break cycles. Well, thank you for all of those beautiful definitions. I There's something here um, that I want to kind of dig into a bit because the book is a bit spiritual. 
So I know you have like spiritual practices within the book. So I'm curious, there's like seven questions I have to that. So I'll pause, but like, I'm curious, I'll just start there. Like, you know, when you define spiritual, like what does that look like for you? And then kind of maybe I'll wait and hold myself, my excitement. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the thing about intergenerational trauma is that it's been defined, widely defined as a soul wound, meaning that it impacts us in our minds. It impacts the ways basically that we tend to think about ourselves, the world, about others. And it also is something that actually creates in us like this stuckness of our emotions. Like we remain stuck in shame, stuck in guilt, stuck in sadness. And so that's the mind element of intergenerational trauma. But we also have the body element, which is basically the ways in which trauma gets captured in our nervous system. And then that impacts a host of other areas of our bodies in which we lose optimal functioning. And sometimes we lose our capacities to fight disease, which means that we develop chronic illness, you know, like there's so much that's happening in the body as a result of trauma that is also worthy of integrating and understanding because that's a part of the wound. So it also has to be a part of the healing. And then the third part is the spirit. The way that I conceptualize spirit in the realm of healing is, and even in the realm of how we hurt is a disconnection to ourselves, to others, to the universal elements or to higher powers, right? Like we are just disconnected. We're dissociated. We're not in connection, not in flow, not really like feeling the warmth of community, the warmth of relationships, the warmth of feeling protected. And all of that gets distorted and disjointed in the process of trauma, particularly intergenerational trauma. So for me, if I were to operate as a holistic psychologist, meaning that I am bringing in the mind, the body, and the spirit, it needed to be that every practice and every intervention that I brought into this book and into my practice had to have every element incorporated within it because what I want is whole healing, right? Holistic meaning whole. I want to help the whole person. I want to help them have at least the recipe for what holistic healing can look like, which meant incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Hmm. This is more of a personal question, but have you always, I mean, I guess they're all personal, but have you, would you have always considered yourself a spiritual person? I think I've always been this very like tender, intuitive, like, grounded emotional person mm-hmm. and and it's very deeply emotional like I feel a lot for people I feel a lot within myself so I've always been that person and I am a spiritual person um, but that didn't come until my late 20s and it's been actually like it, it there's been a lot of transitions like I used to be very very highly religious and devout I transitioned from that identity into more of a spiritual identity. But frankly, until I actually got the training in this, like, as I mentioned in the book, and I'm sure you're aware, like this holistic mental health uh, fellowship that was a part of a, a U.S. health services grant with the government that combined, you know, uh, services with Columbia Medical, where, where I trained, 
all of that really kind of reoriented me to the ways in which this mind-body-spirit approach to the work it is really central and important. Like I actually, my initial training was actually in more like kind of like the Freudian kind of psychoanalytic, psychodynamic types of practices that had a little bit of a feminist bend to it. But all of that wasn't incorporating holistic psychology or holistic practices within therapy. I actually had a supervisor who would sit with me and coach me through how to incorporate meditative practices inside of therapy. And it's those experiences and that supervision and that three-year training that I received that offered me then an understanding of, oh, I can bring this into the therapy room and help people to connect in a different way to the, the element of them that is more like spirit-based that actually was also wounded in the process of intergenerational trauma. Wow. That's so beautiful. And I feel like we're seeing more and more of like, it's not segmented. It's not fragmented. It's, it's all in one. Um, there's something here too of like this spiritual element. So the intergenerational trauma, but you also talk about intergenerational abundance and I love, yeah, I'd like love to hear. I feel like this is like kind of that last chapter of like, that is the abundance. It's not living in the trauma, not living in the pain, but shifting into how to cycle break, but also how to kind of like leave on, like pass things on, like you're saying, you can implement different practices or things of that nature that you can then pass on. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, like just, is that something you termed yourself? Is that something that's kind of spoken about within the community you're in? Yeah, you know, it, although I did, I did coin a few terms for my practice, and then subsequently for the book, intergenerational abundance was not one that I necessarily coined. It's just one that I use with frequency, and it is a byproduct of a lot of things. It's a byproduct of stepping into our generational resilience, really leaning on generational wisdom. Um, all the wisdom that's been passed down, understanding the strength that is inherent within us, really stepping into all of that truth. And not just, as we mentioned before, the idea that we are, which is very common language among trauma survivors, broken. Um, instead of that idea and that global self-appraisal, it's important for us to understand trauma is a part of my story. And then subsequently, there have been other parts that are reflective of my intergenerational growth. It's reflected of my intergenerational strength. And it's reflected of the abundance and the legacy of abundance that I'm hoping to build. Mm. Yeah, I resonate very deeply of like, I think it's so easy when you're doing this work. I feel like I've been on a healing journey for quite some time. It's really easy to just focus on like what's wrong with you and what you need to quote unquote fix, which in turn, you don't need to fix anything. But really this like idea that we get so honed in on what's wrong. And I love the book because you share that perspective of like your, um, where am I train of thought? Your like your grandmother, like there's just wisdom 
like inherent wisdom within. And that doesn't just come from nowhere. Like it can be passed down as well. So it's like figuring out those. And I love what you say of the the resilience um, because I think you shared a chapter. It's the intergenerational nervous system. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) it's like that, um, right? Like, I mean, I guess I just toggled a bit, but like switching to like focusing on what, you know, my family doesn't handle stress very well, like at all. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's definitely been passed down. And um, it's funny because I see people now and they're like, oh, you're so grounded. Like, I'm so regulated. I'm like, yeah, uh, I just I have a lot of resources. that support me. Um, but kind of, I think I'm just guilty of what do I need to fix? This is wrong with me. This is wrong with me. This was passed down. And instead like taking a step back and being like, yes, all that is there. And like, I've gotten through really challenging times and I've been gotten through really hard conversations. Like that comes from somewhere as well. And like helping people hold both like the two, the two truths at once. Oh, the two troops. Yes. <laughs> I love, I love your framing of that. And it's, yeah, it's really about remembering those things. Like I have resources. I have people that came before me also that had a specific set of resources that were just innate, right? Like they didn't have a tool like break the cycle. They just knew how to survive. And that's also a part of, you know, what I have internalized. It hasn't just been the internalization of pain it has also been the internalization of, well, um, overcoming a really tough relationship and one that really like pummeled my self-esteem. And I saw the ways in which, you know, my mother overcame that with her first partner. And now she's able to have a healthy relationship with my stepdad. And as a result, I can also kind of like internalize a very similar way of being in relationship with others. That's also a part of our history. But we tend to focus so much on the pain and it's understandable that we do. I want to just like kind of disclaim that, right? Like it's really, and I, I wrote this book to help us dig into the pain also because I know that that's a really important part of what we need to know about ourselves. But stepping into the pain only can actually be counter therapeutic. It's important to also balance out our understanding of ourselves with that added, those two truths, as you mentioned, that added truth about all of the the gifts, the intergenerational gifts that we've also been able to inherit. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's something here too of like, I I don't know. I feel like with pain we we can just get so deeply ingrained in it. And to your point like but there's something here like you said earlier their definition of trauma and how like trauma was I can't verbatim but trauma is essentially a way that we protected ourselves. Like it's we look at it kind of as this daunting, looming kind of pain and why are we wrong and how do we fix ourselves? But at the same time, like the trauma that we have was a protective mechanism. Like you were saying, it helped us cope. 
-hmm. And I think even just switching it from that way of like a lot of, um, a lot of times when I work with clients, like we talk, like I ask them, like, what are you protecting yourself from? Because they're like, I don't know why I do this. And I self-sabotage and And it's like, but you're protect, like there's a protective mechanism happening. Um, and I love that because again, it's, it's, it's flipping the script a bit instead of making trauma this like, again, dark, daunting thing. It's like, no, these are just protective mechanisms that you'd like to change or not just, I mean, I'm simplifying, oversimplifying, but, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, they are, you know, protective mechanisms that aren't serving us. The ones that are there and protect us in the short term, but actually cause us more pain in the long term because they can increase our stress. They can make it so that we feel restless. And so it's important to, yeah, see their utility. But also the thing about psychological defenses, the ways that, at least the ways that I was trained when I was still kind of like more dynamically and psychoanalytically trained, we were trained around psychological defenses as being normal, natural things that uh, just processes of our minds to help us absorb the world. But when we started really identifying, um, and I don't really like using kind of a lot of this language, but we started identifying that there may be what is traditionally considered like a mental health condition or disorder, right? It usually meant that we were overutilizing a psychological defense or defaulting to it as kind of like our general go-to without having variable, like different kinds of defenses to lean on at any given point in time. And so, you know, One example might be like there are people that intellectualize or, you know, intellectualization is one of the psychological defenses. I believe there's 10 initial ones and they may have been expanded. But some people just like really kind of like narrate their entire storyline in a way that helps them to detach from their, their own emotions. Right. And that detachment can be seen as avoidance especially if that is like your day-to-day, you're just an intellectualizer. You're such a brilliant soul, you're a genius, and you just intellectualize everything. But you're never really in tune with your emotions, and that's a necessary part of your experience. There are some people that intellectualize by way of completely denying. Denial is one of the psychological defenses as well. They're just like, they're not going to confront, face, acknowledge they, the whole entire experience is relegated to such a, a, a deep part of their brain that they are not even able to access it. And there are, you know, several others. And so like when we lean on just one of those, and that is our general go-to, that is the baseline for a lot of, you know, mental um, discomfort that is longstanding. But if we're variable, Sometimes we may intellectualize, we may deny a little bit, we may withdraw a little bit, we may, you know, like, um, sometimes we may, you know, we may walk away and that's maybe a little bit of fleeing, right? So Sometimes we may actually say, you know what, I want to sit here with this because this is the way that I'm going to cope through it. I'm going to just see it through. And other times we may be like, actually, I'm going to write what my emotions are in this moment. Because I just need to put it down on paper because it feels like a big blob of emotions right now. And we start varying up the different ways in which we actually start coping through life circumstances. That gives us an opening 
an opportunity to have choice, agency, and not to be constricted by the psychological defenses that our minds have defaulted to. It's so interesting because I feel like recently I, I guess, let me ask this question, like someone who's detached from their emotions or struggles to connect to their emotions, like what would you suggest is a great tool or resource to access them? Hmm. <laughs> Asking yes. for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think sitting, gently sitting with our emotions and getting curious about how we're internalizing them in a body-based way is really, really helpful. For example, um, I struggled through uh, a, like the body representation of my stress for many, many years was actually gastrointestinal discomfort. And I got all kinds of assessments, the diagnoses. And granted, like now that I do a lot of like this, like resolution of like stress and trauma in my own body, I don't have any of those issues. Mm. But back then, and I remember, I strictly recall that back then I would be in my environment, my work environment specifically, and I would be a ball of anxiety, um, feeling always like triggered by something, very tender, uh, feeling out of place, just like all kinds of emotions that create tension in the body. And part of that tension that is connected to our nervous system does constrict the gastro tract. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot of sense that my, you know, it, digestive process was being impacted by the ways that I was absorbing my environment. However, when I started re really being attuned, like, oh, my belly, and just like really tuning in, that's where I feel it. What do I feel right now? Actually, I feel a bit of shame. I feel a lack of worthiness because I don't feel like I belong here because imposter syndrome is so prevalent in my mind. Okay, that's where we're headed, right? And so just like really tuning in. Now it's a body-based experience. Now it's actually emotion that's tied to it. Now there's a deeper understanding of what is happening. In comes a bit of that compassion. And now there's something I can do about it. Now I can actually help my nervous system to relax because I have the tool of breathing. I have other tools. I used to do a lot of Tai Chi. And all of that is really helping me to just like release the tension while I also work on the mind aspect, which is reminding myself that I do belong in spaces that weren't traditionally built for me, that I do have something to offer that is unique, that there's a reason why I was hired. You know, like all of that comes into play in the mind aspect, but there's also a body-based aspect that's really important for us to tune into so that then we, when we do the healing work, we know exactly where we're headed with the healing. That is beautiful because... I definitely am someone I can call out the body feelings. I'm like, oh, I don't feel good. Oh, my stomach, like um, things of that nature. But truly, like, I think attaching an emotion to them or like asking like, hey, what's going on? Like, what are we feeling right now? Why is this surfacing is such a different relationship that I haven't kind of connected the two Um because I will tell anyone, I'll be like, my shoulder hurts, my neck hurts, like, <laughs> every body-based ailment per se. But um, 
Yeah. I never thought to like actually sit then with it and be like, what is the emotion around this? Hmm. And there's so much gentleness and compassion in that approach, I think. Because very often, like, we get into circumstances that are driven by our emotions that are, you know, our emotions just like kind of like in a split second, they drive us to do things that, you know, let's say it, that we, we do something that can be relationship destroying. We yell at our significant other and call them names. And traditionally, that's a part of the pact that you have in that relationship. You don't call each other out of your names. But in comes, you know, anger about something that happened. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're in that place. What, the way that I like to reframe that scenario, granted, there's a lot to think about, a lot of context here, but at least from a body-based perspective is every cell in your body was invested in protecting you in that moment. Mm-hmm. And you perceived your significant other as a threat, as someone that was there to hurt you, as someone that wanted to cause you some type of harm and that you needed to figure out a way to make sure that they didn't have power over you and that they didn't have an opportunity to hurt you deeper. So what do you do? You fight. You say the things that you know are going to probably bring this person down to a level that feels like they are no longer a threat. So if you shrink them, if you contribute to the shrinking of their person by calling them all kinds of things, you're stupid, right? So now they're a stupid person, no longer as much of a threat. Um, All of that is a part of the process of a body, a nervous system, cellular memory, all working together to actually protect you. But if you have greater body awareness and attunement, I always say it buys you back time. For example, in that very moment, when you feel that fire surfacing within you, you're no, you're about to scream, you're about to say the things, right? Not relatable <laughs> yep. at all, Dr. Mary. Right. <laughs> we all know that moment. Like it is, it is that moment where we're like, the one thing can happen that can be relationship destroying, or we can buy ourselves time. And time can be all of two seconds. It doesn't have to be like 30 minutes. It can be two seconds of time that can actually allow our minds to catch up to the fact that our bodies are just registering a perceived threat based on history, not based on really what's in front of us. Mm -hmm. And it can allow us an opportunity to just tune into ourselves and ground ourselves and choose the option of breathing through that fire rather than (laughs) spitting fire. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Breathe through the fire, don't spit the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. So with that, um, do you suggest or like, have you found things? I know you just said breathing in Tai Chi, but like, how do we give ourselves that time? Like, and maybe this is more like read the book, but if you have a few that you feel like are really, really instrumental, like they really want you to know this right now because it could support you right away. Yeah, you know, um, apart from the breath, there are two practices that I always like help people to absorb as nervous system regulatory practices. And the reason why I lean on these is because they're fairly accessible to all of us at any given time for most of us. And the, the two practices are humming and rocking. 
And what I mean by accessible is that you can be in between meetings at work and you have an opportunity to kind of sway from side to side and each side you breathe in and breathe out. Mm. And that actually, both the breathing and the rocking are ventral vagal stimulators, which means that they actually stimulate a relaxation effect in your nervous system. So if we do that for a period of five minutes, you now have five minutes between the last meeting and the next meeting. You can still type, sway, breathe, or you can just not type and sway and breathe and offer yourself an opportunity to feel the relaxation that your body can absorb naturally. The same goes with humming. Humming, you know, how many of us listen to music every day? Probably 100% of the population, <laughs> right? So what I tend to usually say to folks is um, you have an opportunity to hum your favorite song at the top of the day rather than sing it. Whatever song it is, that's why I don't even prescribe a specific song. I just say, what's your go-to? What's the, one, what's the first one that's going to, you know, it can even be a song that's like not even sung. Yeah. That is like. <laughs> just a melody. You yeah. know, just some, anything. And, and it allows you an opportunity to bake the healing into your day without having to book a one hour yoga practice, 30 minutes away from your house that takes you like. In, in totality, you know, 30 minutes to get dressed, 30 to get there, an hour <laughs> to do the practice. You know, you got to get out of the studio, clean the mats and like do all this stuff. That's another 30 minutes and you get home, you have to shower and you've got three hours of time. Right. And there's a, a very powerful effect that can be very similar that you can do in humming and rocking and in breathing. And so- very often I tell people, listen, these are tools that are there that you can use at all times so that you don't feel like you have to add an added task that can take a lot of time. And for some people who are parents, some people who are busy, some people who you know, just have a lot of responsibility. There's people that are adult children who take care of their parents. There's people who you know, just happen to be in very uh, demanding careers. And all of that needs to be factored into how can you still heal? Mm -hmm. So I always lean on those three, humming, rocking, and breathing. Wow. Yeah. I recently did a, like a brief meditation that was like a humming meditation. It was just inhale, hum, exhale. And I achieved such a level of like peace that literally before our conversation, I was like, hmm, <laughs> it just started humming. And I was like, this yes. works. So it, it's not not wild, right? The synchronicities of you saying like that is such an easy, accessible way. Um, and I know in your book, you talk about a lot of like, not a lot of, but most of our like illnesses are related to stress. So there's a, a ton. Yeah. Like we, you know, and the numbers haven't changed in a very long time. Like when I first started um, doing research and even like in my own training, we were still getting uh, perspectives from research that said like about 70% or so of primary care visits are stress related. And there's a stress component that's attached to why people present with chest pain, why people present even with a rash, why people, you know, like there's so many things. And it was like, you take the stress 
or you diminish it and the actual symptom tends to go away. Mm. But many of us aren't actually trained in a global society. We aren't trained to really look at stress as a possible root of why we may be presenting with something to our primary care visit. And so what that does is that it just leaves stress to chronically be there because we're not addressing it. We're not recognizing it. We're not addressing it. And so we're just going to our primary care visits. We're going to, you know, a gastroenterologist or whoever else, and we're getting prescribed medication, but we're not being told, hey, so what's going on in your life? Mm. Let's talk about that. Any stressors. <laughs> maybe let's talk any stressors. <laughs> and let's talk about the ways in which those may be contributing to the ways that you feel physically. I love that. So it's like the next time you feel off kilter, like try to breathe, hum, and rock for <laughs> yes. calm that natural, uh, that central nervous system and yes. find some relaxation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another thing here before we wrap up of someone who's listening to this and is already birthed a child or their child is older in age. Like, does that mean that that's it? They lost their chance because they didn't heal or... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most prominent questions that I get. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's never, it's never too late to heal. It is every day there's an opportunity to break the cycle and we just have to take it. And I've seen, I I always make a reference to my eldest uh, client who was 84 years old. Wow. And trying to break cycles. And also in this book tour that I just did, I had so many, especially in the last talk, which was really heartwarming because I think that one person said it and then another one and then another one, which was that there were people who were in their 60s, some in their 70s, and they kept asking, how can I make amends? What can I do? How can I break cycles with my now adult daughter? Mm. What are ways in which I can change the things that I didn't have an opportunity to change before? And it gave me added hope. I already saw the hope in my practice and even in my own parents, but it gave me added hope to the fact that we can still work on breaking cycles, even if we have adult children, even if we have um, many decades of being in a set coping mechanism that hasn't worked in our favor there's still a chance, there's still opportunity. Yes, of course, it might be a little bit harder if people are already kind of tied into a coping mechanism that feels very default. So yes, now both generations do have to do the work because now you have a whole adult that is used to be your child and now they have to do some of the extraction of those wounds. However, it's important to understand that age is not a matter when it comes to breaking cycles. It, it really is. And I've seen it time and again. And when I tell you like the 84-year-old client was a Dominican man. Mm. And, you know, I think that maybe when I said 84-year-old client, most people would have probably envisioned a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Most people would have probably envisioned, you know, like like a tender, you know, <laughs> like older woman. And no, not at all. This was like a vibrant, like, mm. you know... Man, and I was like, you know what? Because especially men traditionally don't attend therapy, and this man was so dead set on doing the work for himself and the next generation. I'm like, I have all the faith. Mm. Nobody can take it away from me because I worked with this person for years. 
and they were sit, set and situated on being able to break cycles. And so if, if they can do it and they were already a grandparent, I feel like any of us can really take that courageous task on in the same ways that he did. Mm. So beautiful. There's like a whole nother segment of like relationships and men, <laughs> but I'll leave that. Maybe we'll have to part two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, this has been such a beautiful conversation. I have a few fun questions for you before we sign off. Um, what do you do to raise your vibration? Hmm. Well, apart from doggy kisses, uh, very important for me. Uh, I actually, I connect to earth a lot. And as much as I can, you know, the, we have winters here, right? So I do what I can, but connecting to earth is one of the most amazing finds that I have found in my own personal healing journey. And it makes me feel like there's, there's so much more to life, but also mm -hmm. just the beautiful earthly miracles that are in front of us are always like amaze me every single day. And just the more practical brain right now, like when you say connect to earth, like are you physically touching earth? Are you just being in the natural elements? What does that kind of look like? Yeah. So, you know, I will stop and stare at a leaf and its mm. properties I will, when it's warm enough outside, I'll do earthing, which is like basically taking your shoes off and walking on grass and like allowing yourself to really touch earth in a, in a very natural way. Um, I am, you know, always like finding something that, that just is different or captivating about a tree. I'm a very big tree person. <laughs> Uh, I love it. I love it. And it's also like my book has so much so much yeah. that's reflected about trees, but I really do love trees. I remember going to uh, Puerto Rico for the first time and I I don't know if you ever seen a eucalyptus tree. Mm -mm. Oh my goodness. Oh. The most gorgeous thing. It is a rainbow color. Okay. It is and I think that's a specific species of eucalyptus, but it is Gorgeous. gorgeous. It has like all these rainbow swirls in the bark. Like it's the actual tree is not like just a brown tree. It's gorgeous. Okay. And so like things like that, that I just like really kind of just meditate on, um, sometimes touch, you know, um, that that's the way that I connect. Mm. I'm going to have to look up <laughs> this eucalyptus tree. I'm very It's curious. so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, what is, for the next question, what is your favorite way to have fun? <sighs> Oh, I love this. Is this fun? I don't know. I <laughs> no judgment. I'm like, I love pottery making. Okay. It, it, I love it. It's so, to me, it's so meditative. fun. It is meditative, but it's also really exciting, like to make things and paint them. Um, I love doing that. I love dancing, Ooh. like Spanish dancing. I love salsa <laughs> dancing. Love it, love it, love it. I, you know. I'm kind of older now, so I don't really like do the club thing yeah. <laughs> um, anymore. But <laughs> but if there's like you know maybe like an afternoon birthday party, <laughs> I might get up and dance. <laughs> I relate so deeply. I feel like there. I saw a nightclub 
recently that was like, we open at 5 p.m. and close at 10 p.m. And I was like, "Mm, I might need to go to that. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The 4 a.m. days are long gone, you know. Oh, no more. (laughs) I I would need four days to recover and (laughs) I can't afford it. (laughs) Yes. Um, All right. Well, with that, what is your favorite way to relax? I... Hmm. That's a really good one because I do so many things and now I'm trying to think which one's my favorite. Mm. But relax. Gosh, that really stumped me. Because I'm like, you know, I'm like that person that does it so much and I'm like, which one is it? (laughs) But in the mornings, I actually turn on, oh, you know what? I know. So... I have this, it's a new practice as of like a year ago, but somewhere around like three o'clock in the afternoon, and this is nearly every day, I do this thing where I turn on um, some ocean sounds Mm. and I just allow myself to almost kind of drift into my mind, my breath. And it's just this really like very like, insightful, beautiful, no frills moment where I'm just allowing my mind to go where it needs to go. And it is what I call like my moment of creativity, where instead of sitting down and thinking, well, what's the creative thing I can do? I just like turn on, this ocean sounds are really therapeutic for me, given that I'm a Caribbean person. And so I just like turn that on and just allow my mind to go wherever it wants to go and think of all the possibilities and it gives me an opportunity to just because I'm I don't have an expectation, I just feel so settled and mm. so grounded. And sometimes I actually fall asleep. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love yeah. that. I'm like, hmm, yeah. Might need three o'clock. I'll be there. I'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things. It definitely it's a new thing, you know, but I it's one that I deeply, deeply enjoy. Whereas the others I do because I'm like, I want to make sure that I'm well mm-hmm. and centered and grounded and balanced. That one is like, there's something about it, is it, it because it's more creativity focused. It just gives me like, it energizes me even when I fall asleep and I like wake up and I'm like, oh, I thought of that. And that was so beautiful. And like, you know, I start thinking about how I can like, you know, follow through on, on my thoughts. Mm. So good. Love that. Uh, last question. What's your go-to dance song? Oh, <laughs> there is a song. I think it's by Hector Lavoe and Ruben Blades. And it's called Buscando Guayaba, which in translation is I am looking for a guava, mm. which is the, the basically is like I'm looking for a girl, a lady, like, you know, but she's sweet like a guava. <laughs> Um, very Latino of them to like (laughs) make that analogy, but, um, it's this beautiful, melodic, gentle salsa. That's like very soft and gentle. And sometimes I'll pick up the dogs and like dance with them. And that tends to be like kind of on almost a daily playlist for me. Wow. Oh, I'll have to check this out. I'm excited. It's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful, it's very like. 80s, 90s, salsa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Well, Mm -hmm. thank you. 
so much. Today was incredible. I'm so grateful for your time. Um, I did want to mention, because you do have sound healing within the book. So just wanted to like add that into kind of the resources and that are offered within there. And I have it right here. So I keep putting my hand down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then just if anyone is listening and they're like, holy moly, I love this woman and I want to learn more about her and I want to get her book, where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me at uh, com. I'm also uh, very active on LinkedIn these days. And um, the book can be found there. From what I hear, people are really loving the Audible version. So, you know, yeah. it's like I say like it's like a therapist in your ear really kind of guiding you <laughs> through the process. Now, so. are you narrating it? I am, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, <laughs> if anyone's been listening, your voice is just, it is just so relaxing and so, yeah. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully people can enjoy the audio version as well since, you know, it, it kind of is like because there's so many meditative practices, then I guide people through the meditation in the audiobook, which is a nice little treat. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much again. Um, and I'm excited to see. I mean, we're only a, what, a month, in, not even like two weeks, <laughs> two yeah, weeks into yeah. the book. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So excited yeah. to see how the journey of continued success goes for you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited to see it too. I appreciate this conversation. It was so heartwarming and just grateful always to talk with you. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Shift Your Paradigm. I hope you've been inspired to see things differently, understand yourself a little bit better, and know that anything is possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and connect with me on social media. Stay tuned for more transformative conversations to come. Until next time, keep shifting your paradigm.